If you enjoy this podcast, become an ongoing Patreon supporter. There you'll find regular giveaways, weekly updates, monthly AMA threads, and more. Sign up today at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Also be sure to visit the affiliates page for discounts to courses with Permaculture Women's Guild and Heather Jo Flores, as well as the Environment Celebration Institute and Dr. Elaine Ingham. You can also save on herbal remedies from Susquehanna Apothecary and some of the best hand tools around from Rebel Garden Tools. Those are at the permaculturepodcast.com slash affiliates. You'll find links to those and more in the show notes for this episode. This is the Permaculture Podcast. My guest today is Emmett Van Dreisch, author of Carving Out a Living on the Land, Lessons in Resourcefulness and Craft from an Unusual Christmas Tree Farm. He joins me to share his life transitioning to farming, how he became a Christmas tree farmer who coppices softwood balsam firs rather than cutting and replanting, how he earns an additional on-farm income through basket willow and spoon carving, and we end with his thoughts on planning for long-term succession, both of the land as he considers how to leave this patch of earth for future generations, and the process of transitioning a farm between non-family members, as he took over responsibility and ownership of the Christmas tree farm from his mentor Al. Enjoy this conversation with Emmett, and I'll join you again afterward. Then Emmett, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to run a Christmas tree farm, and we'll take the conversation from there. Sure. So I grew up about half an hour away from where I currently live, um, and, and maybe uh, 40 minutes away from our farm, because we, we live off the farm now, about 10 minutes away. And my wife also grew up in the area, so we actually met when we were both living up in Maine, but we recognized that since our parents live 40 minutes apart from each other, that we wanted to be somewhere down in western Massachusetts so that uh, our kids could know their grandparents, since we had that unique opportunity to have them know sort of both of them quite well. So we moved back to the area 12 years ago and for a couple of years worked on a vegetable farm that was a couple miles down the road from the tree farm we ended up taking over. And this vegetable farm is quite well known in the area now. They're a, they're a dairy farm called Side Hill that, that makes yogurt. It's one of the only yogurt makers in Massachusetts. But at the time, they were famous for being in Barbara Kingsolver's book, Animal Vegetable Miracle. And we thought for the couple of years we were there that we were going to take over that vegetable farm. And that was our plan. My wife had been a farmer for a number of years before that in Maine. And, and this was our dream was to have a small vegetable farm, homestead the rest. And we looked around at all of our young farmer friends who were also having kids because we were young and wanted to have kids young since we had the opportunity. And we, and we thought to ourselves, well, they look miserable. So we decided to move off the farm. It wasn't clear sort of when that transition might happen of us being able to buy that farm. So we moved off the farm and we happened to move into this farmhouse that was five miles down the road. And the farmhouse was on the property of this guy who had this Christmas tree farm. And we had known him for, for years. He, the last couple of years, he had come to the farmer's market trying to find somebody to take over his tree farm, or at least part of it, because he was getting old and, and wanted to have some help sort of leaning on all the growth that was happening in the trees because they were putting out more branches than he could harvest and sell, and, and things were quickly getting overgrown. And we had said, no, 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 that's not us. We want to be a vegetable farm. And, and even when we moved onto his property, we just, we didn't want to do it for probably a year, but it was right when the recession hit in 2008. 
And so we had, it wasn't clear what we were going to do with our lives other than that. So despite first resisting Al's uh, wanting us to consider taking over the Christmas trees for the first year that we lived there, we ultimately decided to have me give it a try. And what was that experience like moving from a vegetable farm and what you were familiar with to farming Christmas trees? <laughs> Gosh, it's really different. So, so now it feels so much easier because each year I have tried to analyze what I'm doing and what I don't have to be doing and to reduce the amount that I'm asking myself to do. Sometimes that's so that I can spend that time, you know, increasing the productivity of the farm. And sometimes that's so that I can just do less and focus my attention elsewhere. And that is really different than a vegetable farm where there's definitely this ethos of you have the growing season, you're going to crank it out as hard as you possibly can and, you know, burn the candle on both ends. And the vegetable growing season is a long season. And so while there's definitely a period from the end of October until mm, close to Christmas, maybe a week before Christmas, when I am working seven days a week, all day, every day, as much as I possibly can, it's a short and well-defined period. And, uh, and, it's, and it's easy compared to the long, the long growing season on a farm. It, it's also just less, it's less complicated because at least the way that we grow these trees, there are fewer parts that I create myself. I'm mostly just reacting to what is there. Because all the trees are planted and because the stumps are where they are, I do some small amount of planting, but mostly I'm just I'm, I'm cutting back growth, so I'm rehabilitating stumps, I'm clearing back other growth, so I'm making business decisions, but it's not nearly as intensive as all of the decisions that go into vegetable farming. So in some ways I feel almost like I'm cheating, that I get to still be a farmer, but yet, you know, don't have to go through the grueling marathon that I see all of my farmer friends go through every growing season. So you're not breaking out your seed catalogs, or in this case, your tree catalogs in January and start plan planning for your spring planting. You're just going through and maintaining. Exactly. Because the, because the stumps are coppiced, I'm using stumps that Al planted 50 years ago in some cases. You know, he, he planted trees over the course of probably 30 years, and he planted them one gunny sack at a time. He was a, he was a shop teacher about half an hour away, and, and his commute would take him past some colder areas of the state where the, the balsam will germinate more successfully. Balsam requires a certain cold temperature in the winter to, to germinate strongly, and where we are, it's just a little bit too warm. So you get a little bit of germination from some of the big trees that are putting out cones that get overgrown, but, but not nearly as much as in colder towns. So he would drive through these colder towns, and he'd just stop and yank out a gunny sack of seedlings every day and, and go plant them after he got home. And he did that for 20, 30 years, and, and all of a sudden you have 10 acres of trees and, and thousands and thousands of trees. I have no idea how many there are. And so it's really his dedication over all that time that created the, the ecosystem that exists. And now that it exists, my job is really to maintain it. Um, and while I do do a certain amount of replanting each spring, we're talking I might go and yank 100 trees, maybe, and replant, because certain areas where the trees have gotten too big, by the time I cut them down, they, the trunk, 
sorry, the stump won't regrow because what keeps the stump alive is this skirt of branches with needles on them below the cut. And so if the tree gets really big, and you can picture a conifer tree that gets really big, those lower branches die back, right? And so if then if you cut it down where you can actually reach it, all of the live branches are above that cut and the stump won't stay alive. But if you harvest it for the first time when there's still those live branches below your cut, that stump will continue putting out new trees and it just gets more complex and, and more gnarly and, and it'll sort of have multiple areas where trees are coming up. And, and so some of these stumps are these crazy, crazy specimens of things that don't really bear any resemblance to a balsam tree anymore. They're just like, a, you know, this gnarly, crazy stump that has maybe three different places where trees are coming up off of it and, and dozens of sprouts all trying to be trees. And so my job is not to buy stuff and plant stuff. My job is to basically go in and cut away everything that I don't want because there's always an abundance. There's always more than I need, and, and it's always about, well, Al called it leaning on the trees. It's always about leaning on them and, and carving away what you don't want to give breathing room to what you do want. And you mentioned something there that is one of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you is that you're coppicing a softwood, which is something that most folks have not heard of as a practice because most of the material that we know about regarding coppicing is our hardwoods and and certain woody bushes. Could you tell us a bit about how you've been doing this? You mentioned a bit there about leaving a skirt of limbs below the cut. What is it like to coppice these kinds of trees? It's messy, <laughs> is the short answer. You know, especially coming from a, a vegetable background where, you know, you optimize productivity by planting in neat rows and, and in grids in some instances and, and striving for uniformity. This is the opposite of that. It really is. Even if you planted the trees in a neat grid, by the time they've gone through maybe 20 years, they would be all sorts of messy. And, and where paths are shifts over time as you let things grow out and carve away other things. And as certain as trees get tall, they're coming off of a, you know, maybe a waist high to a chest high, somewhere in that range of a stump that's that high. And so you can imagine how wide a Christmas tree gets at its base. That's happening right at your face level. And so depending on which side of a stump a tree is coming off, the path has to either go further around that or skirt to the other side of the tree. And the, the skirt of branches on the tree as well is shrinking and contracting as it grows. And then every four or five years, you cut it back and you, I actually harvest those greens and sell them by the pound to wreath makers. And I also make hundreds of wreaths myself. So everything about the grove is constantly changing in terms of how the pads go and how it feels and what areas are more productive. And there's no sort of this clump is going to get harvested now and that clump will get harvested next year. Well, everything's all just mixed together. So it, it definitely requires letting go of that very perfectionist quality that I think makes for really good vegetable farmers. Um, it's, it's not really appropriate here. As a practice, coppicing Christmas trees had uh, a heyday of maybe 40 or 50 years between when Christmas became a real thing culturally in the United States and people started buying a Christmas tree, right? There was enough of an urban population that didn't have access to forests that they wanted to buy a tree. And so that happened in the 1910s. And around 1950, 1960, up until that point, no farmer in their right mind would spend good, would use good flat cropland or, or pasture 
for growing Christmas trees because dairy was still a big industry around here and it was it was just a foolish use of land. But in the 1950s, 1960s, it started to make more sense to, to use that land for Christmas trees. And that's when you started seeing it makes sense to plant trees in rows because all of a sudden you were growing on land that you could get a tractor onto. And so if you set it up in rows with nice wide aisles, it really allowed for the mechanization of a lot of these processes. Until then, and, and what you see on my farm is you use the scrubbiest, hilliest, rockiest piece of land you had, that's what you grew your Christmas trees on because it was all done by hand and you didn't need to have access to it with a tractor. And so where Al planted was his worst land, and he maintained these sections of open pasture on the rest of his land that he could get his tractor onto. Al learned how to do this from a neighbor of his in Ashfield, who for a number of years was the president of the Christmas Tree Association of America. His name was Linwood Lesher, and he did it on a much, much bigger scale. I think he had a 700-acre farm, whereas Al had 25 acres, 10 of which he planted the trees. And Linwood, I don't know where Linwood learned to do this, the local folklore claims that he just figured it out on his own, that he started selling forest-grown trees and then quickly realized, because if you cut a tree when it's young and you leave some branches below the cut, then that stump will you come back to it. You walk by it the next year, like, huh, there's sprouts coming out of the stump. So it might be that he figured out the economic ramifications of that. I'm sure many people over the you know, millennia have realized that softwoods would do this, but as far as I know, our neighbor down the road was the first one to realize that you could take this tendency of softwoods and use it to produce multiple Christmas trees on the same stump. And Al happened to come along in the late, I'm sorry, in the early 50s when it was right at the end of this period where it still made sense to grow trees in this way. And then Al happened to be the stubborn guy that he is, and so he kept doing it long after, you know, I'm sure there were other examples of people growing trees this way, but they just didn't keep doing it. And Al kept doing it for 50 years. And then he was lucky enough to find me to keep going with it. And so I don't think we were the only ones to do it, but I think just through circumstance, we were the only ones to have kept doing it. And so this is the chance to bring that knowledge to the general public. And that's where my intersection with this is, is because of you're just doing something that it sounds like culturally was done for a long time, but we're several generations removed from that time period. And so no longer have that understanding or knowledge in a way that it can be readily applied. But it sounds like you've kind of kept this tradition alive long enough that now we can learn from you and the handful of other people who are doing this kind of work and keep these skills going for future generations. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, that's a big part of my original impetus for, for writing this book that's being published with Chelsea Green is, is I realized that, that this was something special, that this was, and there are plenty of books out there of somebody who realizes something and starts a farm and, you know, writes a book five or 10 years into the process saying, look at what this looks like. You know, here's me 10 years ago, just starting it. And this is what it looks like 10 years in, but here's an example where you know, Al was doing it for 50 years before we, so we're 60 years into this farm. And how valuable is that to have such an example of something being consistently applied year after year and the effort that goes into that and to be able to see, you know, it answers some of these questions of people ask, do the stumps slow down after a while? Do they lose vitality? Well, not as far as I can tell. If anything, if you handle them correctly and you don't remove too much of the skirt at any one time so that they still have plenty of 
photosynthesis happening, they, they only seem like they're picking up steam. And so in the same way that I think you see coppice trees that are hundreds of years old, not the top part, but the bottom part, obviously, in Europe, I think the same could be done with conifers. It's just, you know, nobody's had the economic reason to do it until now, and there hasn't been that sort of magic, magic combination of somebody being stubborn enough to make it work um, and then being lucky enough to find the transition to the next generation to maintain that. So it felt like this unique opportunity that wasn't going to come again and, and probably won't come again in, for me in my lifetime in terms of passing on something that's valuable. So I wanted to make it happen. Well, and it's the handful of trees that I've coppiced over the years Willow in particular, I can more or less just clear cut them to the ground and walk away and know that I'm going to have sprouts in a couple of weeks and in the following year have this fairly well-formed, at least waist-high bush and wouldn't have to think about keeping that lower skirt of limbs or things like that. So it sounds like there are different techniques that are used in order to do this that I don't think we would necessarily know about without work such as yours. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's deceptive because... Basically, Al taught me what, what he could teach me in about five minutes. And I don't mean that to denigrate, so I'll, I'll get to sort of the, the ramifications of that in a minute. But, you know, when he taught me how, how to do the work, I went out and worked with him. And within about five minutes, I'd seen sort of the basics happen and understood it. And basically, it's, you know, here's how you prune the trees. This is when you do it. Here's what you do to the stumps. Make sure that it remains alive and healthy. Okay. But then what you realize is that year after year, you are learning nuance. You're learning nuance, not just about your particular land, but about circumstances and, and how best to manage the trees because there's a flow to, you know, what you harvest when. And so every part of the process, whether it's actually cutting the stump or managing the growth on the stump to what is the right order to harvest the trees? Do I harvest from over here or do I harvest from over here first? Do I, you know, hold on to these for later on because I'm going to need them? So every part of the process has the five-minute version that's really easy to convey, and then it has the incredibly nuanced version that, that I have done my best to articulate in the book but really comes from years and years of just doing it. And I, I don't suppose that's anything different from any other pursuit that someone might have, but... It's particularly stark in this instance because the basic concept is so simple, right? Just keep branches below that first cut, that live branches below that first cut will keep the stump alive. But then when I look at how I was practicing it 10 years ago versus how I practice it now, there's a lot more nuance at play now. And sometimes that means doing less, and sometimes that means doing more in different ways than I was, than was originally apparent to me. But yeah, I mean, it's, there's that dichotomy of how to convey something versus, you know, you're never going to get it all, and there's no real substitute for, for just practicing doing it. It's interesting that you mentioned willow also because uh, one of the things that my farm has as a limitation is that there's, there's plenty of wet ground, and in this wet ground, the balsam that Al has planted has largely gotten overgrown because while its color might be good through much of the year, by about mid-November the color starts to change, and that just largely has to do with the wetness of the ground influencing the nutrients that the trees can take up through their roots. 
So it's not necessarily, I've, I've had a bunch of conversations with soil scientists and other tree farmers about this. And it's, it's not, originally Al was thinking, oh, it had to do with there just being less nitrogen in the ground because it got leached away by the, the water. But a very experienced Christmas tree farmers convinced me that it, it doesn't really have to do with having less nitrogen. It just has to do with the wetness of the soil impeding the ability of the roots to do what they need to do in order to get that green color to stay. So with a lot of these wet areas, I'm actually transitioning them over to willow with the idea that I can compass basket willow and sell basket willow to, to basket makers. And so I've been in a multi-year process. I'm probably about halfway in with the initial phase of planting as many of the wet areas as I can to basket willow with the idea of building up a, you know, an, an arm of the business that is based around coppicing also, but, but of willow in this case with an eye towards utilizing these wetter areas on the farm. With what you were saying about nuance, there are several things that you've mentioned already that come through about the kind of on-the-ground, hands-on experience that you've had over the years with watching where some of these sprouts are going to grow out and then having to kind of move your path around them, depending on which ones are coming up and you'd like to keep. But something else that you mentioned earlier that's really interesting to me from a permaculture perspective is that Al was picking these balsam sprouts from an area that was colder where they germinated better. But I imagine that because of where this land is that these trees are growing where they don't germinate as well, that in some ways that reduces the amount of work that you have to do because you're not going to have as many of these seedlings coming up, which allows you to focus on your more mature stumps and the maintenance of those as opposed to constantly removing new growth. Yes. I mean, certainly when I think about how balsam grows where it germinates strongly, yeah, that would be a pain if, it, if, if I had thickets of balsam. On the other hand, uh, a great deal of the work that happens is just cutting back the growth that exists at all because while these stumps do, when, they, when, they, when the stumps leaf out and the branches get really big, they can completely shade out the ground. So you end up with this beautiful understory of mosses and interesting plants and blueberries and huckleberries and and then, but then you have these pools of space between the trees because you cut back branches and stuff takes advantage. And so, so one of the things that, that I'm actually, uh, of a very long-term project that I have is to grow standard-sized deciduous trees in and amongst the Christmas trees. Because I have a constantly regenerating wave of deciduous seedlings popping up that I have to cut back, I've decided that what I'm going to do is preserve the best of these, of the species that I want, and create a partial overstory of full-size trees that in 40, 50 years will be valuable in their own right. And that way, if I don't find a successor, then I can, before the Christmas trees get away from me, I can chainsaw those Christmas trees to the ground, and voila, there's already a fully grown and diverse hardwood forest full of valuable trees that I've pruned the limbs off of as high as I can go by bending them down when they're still flexible. So I'll, I'll remove branches up to 16 feet up in the air. And so then all of a sudden there's, you know, there are these really high quality forests that's been growing all the time over the Christmas trees for the next number of decades. And if I do find somebody to take it over, then great, because the other purpose of growing those standards is to provide me with a bit more shade, because one of the things that's exhausting is when I'm pruning in the summertime, and I've actually shifted towards more pruning in the fall now, specifically for this reason, but 
it's hard work when you're when you're pruning the trees. Even with all the changes I've made to make it easier, it's still it's hard work in the sun and it's sweaty. And so I've learned to, when possible, take advantage of the fringes of the sort of the grove where they butt up against larger trees that provide shade at certain times of day. So I'll say, oh, I'm going to prune this section some morning because it gets the shade because that's on the east side of the grove and then those tall trees on the east provide the shade for a while and then it gets to be in full sun. So the idea is that at least in, in uh, most of the grove to have these overstory trees that will uh, provide me with at least some sort of dappled shade that will grow as, as they grow. But that also provides a backup plan so that if I am not lucky enough to find someone to take over the farm when I'm old, that there is an alternative route that the land could take that doesn't just involve letting these stumps completely over get overgrown. So that allows you to plan for the long-term succession of your work on the farm and for anyone who might follow behind, or in the case if someone doesn't, that the land is still productive and continues to be under kind of a form of uh, human-managed conservation. Exactly, yeah, because, I mean, New England, where I live, is full of forests that have regrown from pastures, right? That is that is the primary ecosystem around here. So we have, we have forests, and there is, there is no lack of land that can be logged, et cetera, et cetera. But for the people who own this land or whoever might want to take over this land in the future, having it be something more than just an overgrown stand of these stumps will be valuable, should I not find some way. Because when these stumps get overgrown, it gets real tangly real fast because you have so many sprouts coming off the stump that you don't end up with any sort of forest that is that is particularly useful because they're so it's so dense. And so without this sort of planning for the future, you would end up with much more of a monoculture than exists now. Right now you have probably 90 to 95% balsam trees, but there, but all of the understory plants is what keeps it diverse. And in the areas where the balsam trees have gotten overgrown, because there's a few areas like that, there's nothing underneath the balsam. It's everything is killed out. And so part of it is keeping this forest as diverse as possible going forward, no matter what the situation is. With that diversity, I have some friends here locally that own a Christmas tree farm. And for them in that work, very often it's kind of a feast and famine. They'll sell, you know, a million dollars worth of trees and wreaths over a six-week period. But then there's nothing the rest of the year except kind of maintaining and replanting and going about the processes of the farm. Following you on Instagram, you often are posting pictures about spoon carvings and greenwood carvings that you're doing. Is that one of the paths for you to create additional and steady income throughout the year? with this kind of feast and famine process of only having a product that sells for a certain period during the year? Yeah. And that, I mean, that was the original impetus for, for doing it in the first place. Cause you're right. It's, you know, you'll, especially when I started it, it was really the, our main income and we would get it all in that period of time. And then you basically try and live on it until, until summer when you, you know, you sort of, could pull in other work and and eke your way through to the to the fall again. And after a couple of years of that, I realized that I had this I had this captive audience of people coming to get trees at the U-cut section of the grove. So about half the grove is U-cut and half the grove is is I, I manage for wholesale. But every year I have a couple hundred people showing up 
coming to get trees and, and they were there for me. There's no other reason for them to be there. And so I thought, well, I could, I could sell other things as well. And at the time, my younger daughter, I have two daughters, nine and six, and my younger daughter, so this was five years ago, was at that stage where she was doing a lot of exploring, crawling around. She wasn't yet walking, but she was, you know, crawling her way through the leaves in the yard and picking up things and putting them in her mouth. And so as a parent, uh, it seems like, you know, you spend a lot of time just watching them to make sure they don't die, right? And But you want them to be independent and explore as much as they can, but it's kind of exhausting to just have that role. And so I was standing there on our on our porch, and we heated with firewood at, at the farmhouse that we rented, and, and so there was all this firewood stacked on the porch, and I thought, gosh, I bet I could carve some spatulas or something that I could sell at the Grove. So I started doing that and did that for a number of years, just, you know, carving 20, 30, 40 of them and selling them to make a couple extra hundred bucks felt like a lot at the time. And then, and then after a couple of years of that, I wanted to leave this, this seasonal summer job that I had managing a property for the trustees of reservations, which is a, a conservation group here in Massachusetts that owns a lot of properties. And I wanted to leave that job. And I was immersed at that point enough in the spoon carving scene to be aware that there was a scene and that at least some people seem to be making money from it. And I thought, well, uh, I could do that. And I bought my first smartphone and signed on to Instagram and thought that it was going to be a slam dunk and <laughs> and that, it, and that uh, the world would recognize what I had to offer. And it took a long time to build up. But it quickly became clear that if I stuck with it, that it had the potential to, as you said, smooth out the bumps in our income stream because I can always be carving spoons. If there's demand for spoons, I can always be carving spoons. It's a, it's a little interesting in that because I am so busy during the Christmas tree season, I can't take advantage of the most lucrative time for most craft people, which is the holiday season. I'm already completely flat out. And so I can't attend other shows or, or, or take advantage of those that time to build the spoon carving business. I had to do it in the other rest of the time of the year. And it probably took uh, a year and a half of daily solid effort on Instagram and carving every day to really build my skills and build my stature within the community to a point where I had sales coming in and commissioned work coming in. And, and from there, it built fairly quickly as I figured out how to bring value to people and how to be efficient enough with my time that it was worth me doing. And, and at this point, you know, the exciting thing was seeing it, it really take off and feeling like we had reached price parity, where at this point, uh, this year, I'm at the point where I'm making about as much from the spoon carving as I am from the Christmas tree farm. So that feels tremendous to me because it feels like for the first time I can support my family fully because there's always some way that I can spend my time productively. And between both the Christmas tree endeavor and the spoon carving, it shows just the work and skill and knowledge that's required to get to a point where you can be productive with these kinds of processes. And it's one of the things that I always encourage anybody who is interested in going down what may seem like an alternative path is that it takes time to put the work in, to get to know who you're going to be working with, who you're going to be producing for, what your market or your audience is, and still be kind of true to yourself and what you want to do and bring all those things together and be productive at it at the same time. Yeah, and it's been interesting in, in both the trees and the spoon carving because I, I do think of those as two separate things at this point. I, 
I originally they were under they're they're still under the same administrative umbrella, but they're separate businesses in terms of how I think about them and, and present them to the world. For instance, with the trees, I make probably about four to six hundred reeds a year, and that's a lot of reeds. And that is all happening in about um, a month and a half. And when I started out making reeds, it took me a long time to make a wreath, and it was not a particularly good-looking wreath. And and there's this amazing thing that happens when you do something year after year after year that you do a thousands of something, and all of a sudden it it just becomes it becomes muscle memory. And so at this point, I can make a wreath in seven to fifteen minutes, depending on the size of the wreath, and I can make them completely sort of the, to the right level of consistency that I want because I don't want a perfectly consistent wreath, but I, I, there's a certain there's a perfect imperfection that I'm that I'm searching for in both my wreaths and my spoons. And to reach that level where you can deliver that perfect imperfection comes a lot of practice in between. And I'd say with the spoon carving, the biggest lesson that I had to learn, and I, and I still keep this in mind because I need to learn it again and again, is that is that all the best ideas have come from the customers. That every I I started out with very firm ideas about what I was going to carve and what I wasn't going to carve. And, what I wasn't interested in exploring, and, and time and again, the forms of spoons that I enjoy carving and that have come to be important to me financially and, and just sort of become my thing have been forms that I've either come across as an accident, a lucky accident, or somebody asked it of me and I grudgingly said yes, and then, and then over time realized that they were, it was actually totally brilliant. And that includes things like a, a big part of my spoon carving business is actually selling spoon blanks to other spoon carvers. And that was because somebody reached out and, and saw me, you know, axing out a bunch of blanks from the wood that I have access to because I have this tree farm. And there's deciduous trees on the fringe of the, of the conifers that I can harvest. And he said, hey, you know, I live in Utah and I don't have access to any of this stuff. Could you send me some? And I said, I don't know. Uh, and then I finally said yes. And it turns out that half of my business now is selling spoon blanks to spoon carvers. And I would never have thought of that on my own. That was entirely someone else's idea. And it was entirely based on seeing that there was a demand for this thing once I did it a couple of times and just trying to make it available to people. And I would say the other thing that I've learned uh, from Instagram is that the most valuable thing I can do in when you're part of a community like that, so being in Christmas tree farm is pretty much a solo thing. I'm, I don't interact with other Christmas tree farms. I interact with my customers, some of whom have come for 47 years to the same farm, and it, it means a lot to them. But I don't have a community of other people in the same way that I do with the spoon carving. So what I learned when I was on Instagram and interacting with the spoon carving community is that the more you give, the more you get. And by giving as much as I possibly can in help and advice and and just not asking people to support me, the more they want to support me. And that has been a huge lesson for me that I try to keep in mind always because to me it is the key to success. When you are interacting with people, I always try and give more than I receive. And the last formal question that I have for our interview before we bring this to a close is you've talked about Al and this farm that you're kind of taking over from him. Now he's not a family member. He's not like an uncle or anything like that, that you're taking this farm over from. This is kind of like a non-familial transfer of 
of farm property to a next generation. Can you share with us a bit about what that's like? I know that there are all kinds of folks who are having issues with land access, you know, young farmers looking for places to farm, and then also, you know, long-term family farmers who don't have anybody to pass their farm down to within their family who are also looking for alternative ways to make this happen. So could you share a bit of that with us and what you're going through with Al? Sure. So let's see. Unfortunately, Al is on hospice now. He is, gosh, how old is he? He might be approaching 90. And he's, he's, uh, he, he has been a workhorse his entire life. This process is really tricky. And for us, it, it, it almost fell apart in a number of ways, um, all of which I detail in the book. But it always came down to with something that is this important to somebody in terms of their life's work and with something that is this much money in terms of property, stuff can shift even when you have an agreement about how it's all going to happen stuff shifts because it's so the stakes are so high, both for emotional reasons and for financial reasons. And so we had to learn the hard way to always bring a witness. In this case, it was my father who started coming to all of our meetings with Al and taking notes and then copying the notes and distributing them. And Al had one of his daughters come to the meetings as well, just so that everyone was on the same page. Everything was written down. Everything was above board and and not at all murky, but very, very clear. And despite that, so despite that clarity, you also need to go into it with a willingness to bend because it's not just about saying, well, that was the deal and that, you know, like standing on your high horse. You also need to come at the situation with a level of compassion for what the other person is going through. You know, for a number of years, Al and I operated side-by-side businesses. He only passed on about five of the 10 acres of trees in that first year. And then he would pass on maybe an acre here, an acre there for the next four or five years. And so we were operating side-by-side businesses and people would drive down the road and Al would sort of siphon them off into his driveway. And it, it was, I think it was harder on my parents than it was on me, but I quickly realized that I had to have a very Zen mindset of, playing the extreme long game of this because I understood that Al wanted to pass this on, but he also wanted to keep doing it as well, as long as he possibly could. And so we're, we were both trying to navigate what was fair and what was right and what was, you know, how much effort we had put into things. And I quickly came to realize um, in a way that I didn't at first, how much of my success was going to rest on the decades of work that Al had put into the farm. And one of the things that I, stress the most in the book is that the farm is not about me and it's not really mine. The farm belongs to everybody who's ever come and bought a tree from the farm and it belongs to Al for all the decades of work that he's done and it belongs to everybody who shaped the farm by harvesting a tree from it and it's everyone who's ever bought a tree from us and everyone who's ever bought greens from us that we're all in this together and that the farm is much more than just what I decide to do with it. And so I am much more of a steward of this property and of this tradition that people have had for decades, some of them. And it is, it is a privilege to be that steward and I never ever want to take it for granted. And if you had told me that at the very beginning, I wouldn't have understood it, but that is the truth. 
And with that lesson, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience before we draw this to a close? I think if if you find yourself in this situation and you want to be a farmer or you or you want to support yourself uh, with your hands the way I do with spoon carving, I think the the biggest thing is to to be patient because everything takes longer than you think it's going to take. You know, there there are sometimes it's it's obvious that there are growth cycles that plants require, but but to build a business and to build relationships that that build a name for yourself and to to build the land into what you know it can be takes forever. It's a it's a never ending process, and whatever time frame you have, double it, and then be that patient because you can get anywhere you want to get. You just have to give it the time and put in the work. Well, thank you for that and everything else that you shared from your story with us today, Emmett. I really enjoyed it. Hey, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And that was Emmett Van Dreisch. You can find his work at EmmettVanDreisch.com, his Instagram at Emmett underscore Van underscore Dreisch, and his book, Carving Out a Living on the Land, Lessons in Resourcefulness and Craft from an Unusual Christmas Tree Farm, at ChelseaGreen.com. In cooperation with Chelsea Green, I'm giving away a copy of Emmett's book over on Patreon. That opens on May 20th and runs through the end of the month. This giveaway is open to anyone. All you need to do is leave a comment in the post. You'll find that at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. As a permaculture practitioner, what I like about Emmett's work, beyond coppicing softwoods, is the practical, long-term, multi-path approach to his plans. He's created a diversity of income from the farm that allows him to continue to work there by taking what started as trees and wreaths, supplemented with an off-farm income, and expanded to spoon carving, planting basket willow, and encouraging the growth of deciduous trees. He's also considering future generations in his land management and succession plans, helping to return the farm to hardwood trees for his near-term use as shade, creates additional ecological and economic value. By stewarding the ground today, should someone decide not to farm Christmas trees here in the future, the land takes on a different shape that new eyes can look on with wonder and consider the many possibilities at that moment and form their own view of what the future holds. If each of us could use Emmett's example and plan holistically for the future, even one generation ahead, what a beautiful, verdant world we could have. If you enjoy this conversation with Emmett and would like to learn more, pick up a copy of his book, Carving Out a Living on the Land, Lessons in Resourcefulness and Craft from an Unusual Christmas Tree Farm, from Chelsea Green Publishing. If you have thoughts on this episode and want to continue the conversation, leave a comment in the show notes, or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day enjoying the crafts of your labor and your care of the land, all while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.